The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. You know probably that in yoga people are bending the body, sitting in some positions like you have seen yesterday, and you will see that the trick of them is that you keep them for a long time. <coughs> And um, we have seen at the same time that they are relegated to some form of gymnastics. Even in India, going and talking with different people who pretended to teach in asanas and so on, I was surprised because they would teach them with the eyes open, they would do them as gymnastics, they would do the asanas stretching very much and having pain, you know, and just doing one, two, three, four, five, <sighs> so like something like this. And it sounded so very gymnastic, and they seemed to catch not at all the spirit of it. Moreover, for them, asana seemed to be more like an entertainment, you know, it was not the real thing. When you did asanas, it's like you were relaxing after meditation, or it's like uh, there's the serious practice, well, not the asanas themselves. Asana, somebody said, uh, asanas are a gymnastic of the babas, you know, the babas were meditating a lot. And then when after meditating three hours or four hours, oh, your body would get very stiff. And then they invented all kind of stretching. Eh? This is how the asanas appeared. It's really like it's not the spirituality itself. It's a helper to spirituality. Because of this, I mean, does, this does not correspond to the yoga tradition. When you read the traditional text, you find them saying that if you do this asana, you can reach a perception of the past, the present, and the future. When you do this asana for this much time, you can reach a perception of other people's thoughts or whatever. This asana, when it is performed this and this long time, it can give, for example, a state of cosmic consciousness. Whoa! We are not talking here about entertainment or stretching or just healing. We are talking about the fact that the asanas generate exceptional states of mind. How is it possible? I mean, okay, in the Western world I can expect that people took just the stretching part and they said, okay, it's good for our health and it's good for our fitness. But the funny thing is, it seems to be lost even in India. I mean, when you go to schools which teach Ashtanga Yoga, Ayengar Yoga, all kind of things, it's very much pumping it up, stretching, gymnastics, dynamic. They made the international the Yoga Sports Federation where the contest is looking like in an athletic gymnastic uh, contest. Everything has become very physical. And basically you ask yourself then, what is the story with these asanas? Are they just a physical thing and so on? I told you, and you can have this idea, that some of the people in India, especially who belong to this uh, more religious, spiritual establishments, uh, they are usually saying, yeah, yeah, asana, you are doing hatha yoga, mm, hatha yoga, yes, it's good, tourists do a lot of hatha yoga, and then they have this kind of attitude, like if you do hatha yoga, mm, okay, it's better than if you go in a nightclub or something, but, uh, you know, then when you have done hatha yoga, which is making you just to be a healthy animal, I mean, that's the result of it, after becoming a healthy animal via hatha yoga, you should come to us and start doing meditation and the real yoga, the spiritual yoga, the one which... It's like for them, it doesn't have any value. And the problem is, how can we get 
How could we get to this situation that even in the country of yoga, even in the original country of yoga, you get so much misunderstanding about these things and it is being taught in so many ways. It is necessary to explain this both because it shows some important trends in the spiritual life and it's not only the spiritual life of India, this is something for the whole planet and at the same time it explains where the confusion comes because if not, some of you, especially when you are very green and when you are in the beginning of your yoga travels, in your yoga existential trip, you can get so easily confused, you know, you are going around, somebody tells you something, uh, the Indians have this style that they are very uh, outgoing, they have a very self-confident words and say, no, 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 listen to here, oh yeah, you learned yoga from a Romanian guru, yeah, of course, yeah, but what was, no, come here and we'll tell you how things are, and then you are like a ping-pong ball, you are just going left and right, and uh, it's kind of a great confusion. Uh, how could it happen? Because many people say, is it possible that everybody has forgotten? Because now they don't speak about the concentration of the mind. Now, or like where to put your mind flows of energy chakras. They don't speak about that this asana is for opening the heart, this asana is for this, so the purpose of it. How is it possible? I mean, either this thing is invented by my teacher or by me or by some people now, and it's made up and it does not exist in the tradition, or if it existed in the tradition, how is it possible that it was forgotten after all? To understand uh, what is happening with uh, spirituality generally and what has happened in the Indian spirituality that we reached here, I need to take you five or ten minutes through a small detour in a problem which affects spirituality generally. That's why I do it. You will encounter this dilemma, this duality in the future days because it appears in other fields of yoga, in other issues of yoga, it is the dilemma between the, what we call the Vedantic and the Tantric types of spirituality. In India, basically, spirituality has taken two main roads, the Vedantic and the Tantric one. Vedantic comes mostly from Vedanta, which is a representative of it. We could say it's a dialogue of sorts between Vedanta and Tantra. So Vedanta, let's write them both and then I don't need to stand up. Then I'll tell you what is the story here. The Vedantic tradition of India, taking over some older ascetic traditions, it is even related a bit with the Buddhism, it tells us, it starts philosophically at the highest level of a very strange statement. It says that this world is Maya, and Maya in Sanskrit means a dream, a magic dream, a phantasmagoria, it's like a soap bubble. So basically this world is not having a real existence, it's having an illusory existence. Here is your supreme self, your real self, the only thing which is real, and in front of your eyes there is like a magic dream. So basically, you are hypnotized, you, are, you think that you are here and doing this, and then, but actually you are not. Your Supreme Self is the only one which exists. All this is a lie, and this lie is confusing you. Ah, bananas, yeah, yeah, bananas. I went, ah, nightclub, yes, yes, let's go to, ah, this, ah, this. It's like I'm attracted by all this phantasmagoria, and because of this I'm actually wasting my time. 
instead of sitting and looking at myself and becoming what I could become, I'm all the time wasting my time with food, sex, entertainment, everything. You know, I'm just pulled all over and this is basically a lie. That is why the attitude of the Vedantic forms of spirituality are of neglect and deny to the body, to the world. What is the world? The world is your enemy. It is your worst enemy. All this beautiful thing around you is actually distracting your attention from the basics. And therefore, the attitude is be very firm, you know, deny the world. The body is the symbol of the world. I told you yesterday, right, that the body is a symbol of the universe. So, what is my body? My body is my worst enemy. Because my body wants food, it wants entertainment, it wants sex, it wants sleep, it wants a lot of things, and it doesn't allow me to be my immortal self, to be like a Buddha, to be clear, to be in meditation. No, it is my body which pulls me to the left, pulls me to the right, and gives me all kinds of stupid impulses. So what is the Vedantic attitude to the body? <coughs> Squash the body, you know, tell it to shut up, suppress it. It's mortification. That means you need to do those things which are like self-punishing in a way or another. It sounds paradoxical for you, but not only at the Indian level, but at the world level, the Vedantic mentality is by far predominating. You can look in the Christian spirituality or whatever, and you will see the body is the guilty one. The body is the dirty one. The body is the sinful one. You, you are holy if you fast, if you refrain from sex, if you don't have money, if you do this, then you are holy. If you give to the body, you would never imagine, in, even in Western spirituality, as well as in classical Buddhism and in all the others, that somebody who eats as much as he wants, who dances as much as he wants, who laughs as much as he wants, who is indulging in relationships and lovemaking as much as he wants, and la 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 la, that person can be a holy person. No. Our, even our archetype says that, oh, if somebody is holy like St. Francis of Assisi, that person is necessarily poor, uh, ascetic, skinny, whatever, you know. It's a person who denies the body. That's the classical archetype. Uh, why this has happened so somebody commenting this has said that perhaps people are masochists you know perhaps, perhaps people have found out that torturing themselves is the best way to do it it is it beats anyhow all the time uh, me when I'm thinking about this why should people choose this as being the most effective form of spirituality but fact is that even in India Vedanta is the great winner that means in centuries and millennia of spirituality, especially in the last 500 years. Now the Indians have been confronted with Islam, which is coming from the same root. Islamism is still Judeo-Christian type of religion. So it's the guilt of sex, the guilt of this, the guilt of that. Then the Europeans came, first the Catholics, then the British. Each one of them put a nail in the coffin. That means originally the Vedic culture of India was very open concerning material prosperity, concerning sexual and sex and erotism. They published the Kama Sutra and all the rest. It was not, there was no problem with this subject. Today, if you go in India, the Indians are more taboo than anybody else. They became so square-toed, so puritanic, so 
you cannot talk about this, about that, and so on. That is not natural. The Indians were not like this a thousand years ago. You can read any cultural book which will show you that the civilization has changed dramatically in the last thousand years through this contact. So basically, because of some historical reasons, and perhaps because of the way the human mind is twisted, people have given up a relaxed spirituality for a tight spirituality, a self-punishing spirituality, in which if you whip yourself, you remember. I think it is um, Guicciardini, an Italian middle Age philosopher, who said an uh, interesting quoting. He said, those who suffer, they remember. You know, because human beings have this perversion. When we are beaten up, then we remember about God and about spirit, you know. When somebody is breaking his legs or I don't know what major trouble he has, he starts saying, oh God, oh my God, oh, why, why did you do this? Why, what is happening? Why is this happening to me? God, help me, and so on. Nobody calls for God when they are with a full stomach and happy and relaxing in a hammock. No, when you are, when you are happy, you don't call for God. Happiness you want to keep for yourself. But when you are in pain and agony, then you start praying to God, because that you would like to share with God, which is very perverted, you know. You would like to give your pain to God, but your happiness you wouldn't, actually. So basically, the human beings have discovered that it is better to keep yourself in pain, because then at least you remember, you are awake, you know. You don't forget the spiritual things. If you are full of luxury and money and food and sex and everything, cool things about the divine things, who would make effort, who would put themselves into spiritual effort. Not too many people, right? So, perhaps this is a psychological reason, but fact is that when you go today in India, you will see that everybody who does yoga, when you look at their motivations and their deep beliefs, they are actually Vedantic. India is full of Vedanta. And Vedantic people simply don't believe in the body. They consider that the body is to be suppressed. The less you eat, the less you sleep, the less you give to the body, the better it is. The more the body becomes like a shadow, the more the true self, the Atman, will come from behind the screen and shine through. That means it's difficult to have a strong body and at the same time to be spiritual according to them. That is why the honestly, truly Vedantic schools of India, they actually don't even teach Hatha Yoga. Because Hatha Yoga, the kind of yoga you'll understand tonight what actually the name means, this yoga in which you do physical things, let's simplify it to that, is not a Vedantic form of yoga. When you do Hatha Yoga like asanas and things like this, your body becomes very elastic, very healthy, very strong, very balanced, very <coughs> purified, and the healthy body might want to go in another direction, might want to do some things that are not very orthodox in this way. And basically for this, they don't do Hatha Yoga. For example, in the ashram of Swami Shivananda, I told you already this name, Swami Shivananda himself was a huge yogi. He was very big, he wrote 300 books and he spoke about Kundalini Yoga, Hatha Yoga, Tantric Yoga, healing, a lot of things. But his followers, they didn't feel strong enough to continue all this activity, although there are 40 of them, and they started, they simply dropped Hatha Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, every of this they dropped, they focused on Vedanta. So today they do meditation, they keep lectures on Vedanta, but they are not doing anything of this yoga. Although the man himself wrote and the ashram was big and made specially for this, they simply dropped it. And they don't do it because they say it's not our speciality, we are not specialized in this anymore, we do this. 
some other organizations like uh, for example the Ramakrishna Vedanta institution which is perhaps the Ramakrishna Vedanta I'm sorry the Ramakrishna Vivekananda Vedanta Institute is perhaps the biggest Vedantic promoter in India and abroad of India and if you go to their headquarters in Calcutta and ask I would like to practice some Hatha Yoga you have here because I heard you are a big organization real famous they will tell you no we don't do Hatha Yoga because we consider that Hatha Yoga is harmful to the spiritual development not only that it is not a spiritual development it is harmful it goes against and from a Vedantic standpoint that may be true because in Vedanta you are trying to squash your body to ruin it not to build it up remember the body is what prevents you to see the truth it is because of the body that you look focus on the physical things and you don't look at the spiritual things that's how they think at least and basically they don't do it and then the funny thing is that you go in India and 99.9% of the Indian ashrams today they are Vedantic I have gone in ashrams where they are even writing Tantra on the front like on the Bihar school of yoga and so on they are teaching Tantric yoga wow let's go and see what when you look what they do they are completely Vedantic their activity is Vedantic they refrain from this they refrain from that they shave their heads they do this they don't eat this they don't eat that Asanas is just done as a bit of a joke. In the evening they meet and sing all kinds of Vedantic devotional songs. And This is Vedanta, right? It's not Tantra after all. I'm going to speak about that in a second. So basically, the funny thing is that in India is 99.9% today Vedantic. Even people who claim to be Tantric, they are actually thinking in terms of, yes, the body is uh, not much and uh, the spirit has to blossom this way and that way. So basically the thing is that many people would ask, look, if these people don't believe in the body, then why the heck do they teach Hatha Yoga? Because still you can go in some Indian ashrams or in Rishikesh or whatever and you'll find people teaching Hatha Yoga. Like you can say, okay, even a guy like, uh, I don't know, BKS Iyengar, who is big American promoter of, famous American promoter of Hatha Yoga, is actually Vedantic. When you read his books, you see he thinks in a Vedantic way and yet he is teaching Hatha Yoga for healing and he is famed. Where is the contradiction? I mean, why do these people teach Hatha Yoga when actually they don't believe in the body? Because the body is causing you to wish more sex, more food, more this, more that. It's, there is a very simple and depressing answer to that one. It simply pays. Once I got one of these Swamis from Bihar, he came by Rishikesh and he said, oh, I'm having a connection and I'm going to the West, to Germany or whatever he wanted to go and I'm going to teach them some yoga. And I said, good, the Western world is in need of some spirituality, so go, practically do something. So I said, what is your speciality? Oh, he said, I've been educated in Vedanta by my guru, by Swami Satyananda. I said, great, it's a very abstract thing, it's a very... So I'm say, I said, you are going to teach Vedanta? Ah, no, he said, because the Westerners are not interested in Vedanta, he said. So I'm going to teach Hatha Yoga. So I said, how are you going to teach Hatha Yoga when you are Vedantic? Because Hatha Yoga is not Vedantic, after all. It's a different spirit altogether. Ah, he said, yes, but this is what sells, this is what Westerners want to do. This is the problem. Vedanta is boring. If I can keep you a lecture of Vedanta, I can explain to you in half an hour what all Vedanta says. And then every lecture of Vedanta you are going to hear is just going to tell the same thing under another form. The whole Vedanta can be summed up in one sentence. Tatvam Asi. You are that. Yourself is the universal self. There is identity between you and the universal consciousness. 
Meditate on that. Close your eyes and meditate on that. Thirty years, it doesn't matter, you will reach. This is what Vedanta is. And for the rest, we don't care. The whole rest is an illusion. So, of course, it's boring. I mean, if somebody will tell you one lecture, it's interesting. But if somebody will tell you ten lectures about the same issue, you will say, okay, we knew it, we knew it, we know it all. That is why they do Hatha Yoga. In many ashrams of India, they teach Hatha Yoga because foreigners and people who come around, they pay for it. It's because if you sit to meditate on that, you get bored. But, oh, let's have some action. Yes, stretch, one, two, three... Breathe deeply, yes, let's do the sun salutations that look like a dance, good, nice, it's action, right? You don't get bored and you pay for it. This is the sad thing because it, they are practiced against the spirit where they emanated. Hatha Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, Laya Yoga, all these forms of yoga which work with energy, with chakras, with the body, they are none of them coming from Vedanta. They are all of them tantric forms of yoga and they work on a different principle. And because of this, you find this confusion, because people basically are Vedantic, they simply removed all these things and they are teaching them very much as a simplified gymnastics. The Tantric philosophy of India, and I don't have time this morning to tell too many things about Tantra, Tantra is a very difficult name and it is even controversial. Most people believe that Tantra is something related with sex and smut of sorts, and it has a bad reputation even in India, where people, besides associating it with sex, they associate it with black magic, with all kind of abomination, like eating the wrong things, doing all kind of stuff. It is not absolutely without reason that uh, some people have taken to it such a bad reputation, but it is actually not true, in fact, because uh, Tantra is something else. So I will not try to describe you tonight what Tantra is, but I will have a lecture where we'll reach the relationship between yoga and sexuality, what do you do sexually in yoga, and uh, that involves me telling you a few things about Tantra, what Tantra is and how it appeared and where it comes from and what it wants. Until then, remember that Tantra is kind of the alternative, it's the other side of the coin, it is a pro-world, it is a pro-body, it is a body-oriented spirituality, it is a world-oriented spirituality. The Tantrics looking at the world, they have said the world, the manifestation, may be illusory, as the Vedantic say, in the meaning that it isn't what we see. We look at it and we see things one way and it confuses us. So if we look deeper, we'd see something else. But it is not illusory, absolutely, because it is created by the same force which has created us. And as such, if we are real in ourselves, the universe must be real. And moreover, it is in this dreamlike universe, with this dreamlike body, that you in this dream universe come to the yoga hall, which is just a dream in a dream world, and with your dream body, which is just a dream, sit in meditation and try to reach the high states of mind. So basically this dream is very operative after all. It works. It's not just a dream to be thrown to the dustbin. Basically the tantrics of India have said the world is Shakti. It is the Shakti of Shiva. It is the goddess. It is the mother of the universe. And as such, the world is not to be dismissed or despised. It is to be worshipped. 
it is to be understood, it is to be used for spiritual evolution. That is why in the Tantric tradition they say that everything can be used. That's why they have astrology, astronomy, dance, architecture, a lot of things because they say you can use everything. If you build your house the right way, your house will help you evolve spiritually. If you use the right moment in astrology and in the cycles of the day, then your meditation will be stronger. If you use your body in a wonderful way, then automatically your body promotes spirituality. It, it is like a springboard. Basically the body is the temple of our own spirituality. It is our own portable temple. So in this way, the tantric spirituality is body-oriented. That's why Hatha Yoga, Kundalini, Laya, everything which works with the chakras, with the energies, is belonging to the tantric yoga. And that is why the understanding of the asanas originally came from the tantric yoga. Remember that you can read any PhD study in yoga, I mean any scholarly, real scholarly, not somebody written by a sect member or by somebody who has an agenda. Really, somebody, something written by a scholar, and you will see that automatically, Hatha, Laya, Kundalini and a few others, they are tantric types of yoga. Why is this important? It is important because if you start teaching asanas and hatha yoga and the others in the Vedantic style, you will miss the point completely because then your interest is to suppress the body, not to promote the body and its possible needs. Now, this, this being said, I have tried to explain you why this confusion has appeared because many people say it's too much. It sounds like only you know the truth and a handful of other very chosen people and everybody, even Vikram and Iyengar and I don't know who, they are wrong. It's very big-headed to say this kind of thing. Actually, if you try to do yoga for a year in this style and to learn all the ins and outs of it, you will see that it is right. It sounds very scandalous but it is right. Even great experts in asanas, the actually so-called experts in asanas, they actually are from a tantric yoga standpoint contortionists. They are people who have extreme elasticity in the body. I would admit freely that I cannot put my legs behind my neck the way Iyengar does. I am not as flexible in the body as Iyengar is. But that is not the point of Hatha Yoga. The point of Hatha Yoga is not to turn yourself into a contortionist or to make all kind of perfected things like this and then basically to say okay now it's time to do something serious no this is not with the way the Hatha Yoga works that is why I say there is unfortunately a wrong spirit running through the teaching of asanas and this enough with this introduction let's go on the positive side how do the asanas then actually work there are three models or four models about the way the asanas work and I'll tell, take them one by one from the simple one to the most elaborate one <clears throat> and in this way, you are going to extract some conclusions. You are going to see the way the asanas should be understood. The first of them is the physiological model. After all, we should not deny completely the body, just speak about energies, invisible energies, because the body is also here. When you do asanas, you are compressing the body, like yesterday's asana, right? You are bending over the blood circulation is modified, you are pressing on some areas, you are stretching the nervous circuits in the spine and everything, that means of course there will be physiological effects. You are doing something like the shoulder stand, you press on the thyroid gland, the thyroid gland is producing its specific hormones that has an influence. 
It means we cannot deny the influence of the body. You know, if you are just getting a little bit of adrenaline in the blood, true, suddenly you feel dynamic, your mood changes, your body feels hot, you feel dynamic, it is good for the health, for the kidneys, for the whatever, joints of the bones and so on. I mean, it feels very different. Your mood changes just because of one milligram of adrenaline in your blood. And therefore it shows <coughs> that a lot of our emotion is actually chemically generated by some hormones, endorphins, whatever, <coughs> produced in the body. And as such, therefore in the asanas, you produce such things. When you do asanas, automatically the energy goes in some parts of the body, it irrigates some plexuses, it gets the glands to produce some hormones and so on. So basically you can change that and it would change the mood and it would change the health and everything. That is why remember that it is worth knowing a little bit about the human body, like you should know how is the blood circulation, where is your liver located, where is this and that in yoga, because you always understand, okay, I can put more blood here, I can stretch my nerves, I can determine more electricity in this area, whatever. <coughs> For this reason, <coughs> there is only one thing I would like then to say. If I'm saying that an asana, like when you stand on your shoulders, leg up, we'll do it next week, you compress the thyroid gland and you get the thyroid gland to produce a lot of things, should remember that that will not happen in 10 seconds. If you do asanas for 10 seconds, you'll never get that effect, because the glands take a few minutes to react. And that is why the first thing which results from this and which will be confirmed afterwards, is that you always have to do the asanas longer, longer time. This Americanized style in which you do the asanas quickly, you know, quick enlightenment, fast food, fast sex, fast yoga also, right? Quickly, we don't have time, we're busy. One, two, three, four, ha <laughs> ha, good, there, what else? One, two, this is, this is not yoga. This is a rush which is completely irrational in yoga, which is doesn't giving, doesn't give the traditional result. It's not about stretching, we need to go deeper than that. <coughs> The second argument which is given by people <coughs> is the fact that yoga presents the human body as a network of energy, exactly like in acupuncture, that there are meridians, nadis, channels everywhere. For example, in the arm, there are no less than five different channels which end each one in each finger. So basically, if these are like electric circuits, like electric wires, and some of them come from the leg, from the head, whatever. Then, for example, the yogi say it's not the same thing if you put the fingers like this, or if you put the fingers like this. Because it's like in electricity. If you strap two wires together, you create one circuit or another. So basically in yoga, by doing different things, such as I'm taking this leg, putting it here, then I'm closing the circuit. My energy is forced to run in some ways when I'm closing those circuits. So the yogi is simply noticed that by assuming certain positions of the body, they can force the energy of the body to run according to some lines and therefore it focuses in certain parts of the body. That's why if you stay in a certain position, you notice that automatically the energy of the body goes more in the head or more in the chest or more in the pelvic area or whatever. So in this way, there is an energy circuit theory of the body. This says that the asanas should be done also very accurately. For a person who just aims stretching, if I'm doing this asana like this, 
or if I'm doing this asana like this, it will be the same, right? Because I'm stretching the back. But you forget, this creates one circuit, and this creates another circuit. So basically there are two different asanas. The energy will go in a different place in those two asanas. That is why it is important to have the know-how exactly of this, because it's not only the physical thing. Oh, both of them are bending forward. It's very simple. Not quite, as you are going to see. The third theory about asanas was generated by parapsychologists in the 1960s and 70s, when the Western world was confronted with a hippie wave and with yoga, and then people were trying to uh, evaluate yoga things. Scientifically, parapsychologists have a theory according to which each and every geometrical shape generates an energy which is not yet known by the scientific world. The best example of it is the pyramid power. I don't know how many of you have ever seen or read a book of pyramid power. In the 1970s it became suddenly very popular because some scientists, they even breveted it, they made some invention patents for it. Uh, and people started building pyramid houses, pyramid meditation temples. It was discovered, for example, that a structure, a small one or a big one, as big as a house or as a palace or as small as 40 centimeter cardboard structure, if it is made exactly in the proportions of the Great Pyramid of Egypt, the Cheops Pyramid, it generates under it a very peculiar energy which can be measured by its effects. So basically all you have to do is to build a 40 centimeter pyramid mathematically exactly like the one in Egypt and to put it north-south, to place it facing the four cardinal points, and then under it there appears an energy. For example, if you put a glass of water under it, you can leave it there for six months and it will stay fresh, it just vaporizes a little bit. That's all. That means normally water will go decomposed, will, will decay, will rot, not under a pyramid. If you put a glass of milk, it will last a lot, a lot, and it will not decay, it will not rot or anything. If you put a piece of meat, just a normal piece of flesh under the pyramid, it will not rot. You know, if you leave flesh at 30 degrees at the room temperature, it will rot, but not under a pyramid. Under a pyramid it will dry up and it will become mummified. And in this way, uh, they made experiments with grass, with all kinds of things. They demonstrated incredible effects. You are curious about this kind of things, take a good book of pyramid power and you'd be surprised. They even made uh, pyramid roofs for the, you know, small pyramid things like the eggs, like this egg support made of cardboard, embossed like this, and they would put it on the roof. So you have a thousand small pyramids going down in your room and irradiating the whole room with this energy. Um, basically, let's make the long story short again, the story is that the yogis have realized that when you put the body in certain positions, the body assumes a shape. Like for example, if you are sitting cross-legged, the normal cross-legged meditation-like position, actually maybe you never thought about it, but your body is describing a quarter of a pyramid, where your spine is like the middle of the pyramid, and the two arms are like the two sides of a pyramid, and the energy focuses naturally in the head. So basically, so basically they said that with each and every body position you are actually generating a geometrical shape and this also determines the energy go in a certain area and have certain effects and you can generate different forms, different energies. The last explanation which is perhaps the best and that's why I left it to be the last 
is the psychosomatic connection that is there is a connection between the human mind and emotions and the body in one way this is known as the body language right that our body expresses our predominant emotions if you see somebody who is chronically like this you say this person is the underdog type of person is the person who is used to be bent over by everybody else and so on even in daily language if you see me one day like this you would say oh you must be tired or you must be a bit low on energy and if you see someone like this you say wow this is an outgoing this is a pushy kind of person this is a bold self-confident you know look at the body language that means my body expresses my mood but then the psychologists have noticed a very interesting thing that not only that the mood influences the body but that the body influences the mood in a feedback thing the most simple experiment which is done in psychology about this is the following when you are very happy you smile your face is a big smile let's try the opposite experiment one day when you are sad or down or angry or whatever go in front of a mirror and start smiling by force force yourself to smile your biggest smile that you can of course it will be an artificial smile and actually everybody who tries this experiment first time they get more angry at themselves they get really pissed off and they say I must be the biggest idiot in the world even to try such a stupid experiment you know because this can never work you are sitting there and making putting a fake smile on your face and looking in the mirror and you are suicidal inside you know you feel you would like to shoot yourself you know and there you are smiling like an idiot it's such a senseless experiment right and the funny thing you know what is that after five six minutes approximately you start feeling happy because the brain is just a stupid machine after all it can't make the difference if you give it the right nervous signal it will get through it takes a while and then the brain says oh I'm happy oh I feel very good it's oh, I have the signal the muscles of the face show happiness right it actually happens you can try it anytime you can make yourself feel really happy and good just by smiling to yourself in a mirror for eight minutes it's so very simple this is the paradoxical thing of it and that is why the yogis have immediately realized whoa if you can change your mind with a smile it means you can change it with the position of the body that means doesn't it mean that if you stay like this you will make yourself more depressed then wouldn't it be better that from time to time you control and say whoa whoa whoa, whoa. <coughs> because if you stay like this eight minutes by analogy so to say you can change your mood that means every position will generate a state of mind which corresponds to it and now there is the big question if this one is corresponding to depression and despondency and this one is corresponding to arrogance and self-confidence then what does this one correspond to? this is exactly what it is yoga is a body language it is simply a set of positions which each one of them is associated with a specific emotion and state of mind and if you stay in it long enough remember if you smile to yourself 30 seconds 
you will still be very upset and irritated because 30 seconds is not enough but if you smile to yourself 6 minutes you will get there you will feel the happiness it's the same with the asanas if you do this for 15 seconds you will not get the point but if you do it for 5 minutes you will see it it will appear it's just a matter of time your nervous system needs some time to get into that mood basically all the yogic asanas are exactly this they are a studied thing the rishis and the great siddhas of yore they have studied exactly this they have studied what kind of mood happens in which kind of position and you know that it has been noticed even in psychiatry that even people who are sometimes having psychiatric problems or getting into some uh, exceptional state of mind and it is valid even for people who take drugs or something like this sometimes their body automatically goes in some yoga positions they take LSD and they suddenly sit in the lotus pose or something like this why? how does it how does this state require this position? because the position and a certain state of mind are related exactly as happiness is related with smile when you are full of happiness you cannot stop from smiling and shining you simply shine with it and everybody meets with you and say wow you look so happy today can be seen this is exactly what it is yoga has been created by people who thought deeply about this and they realized this is a condition this is a position of the body where I can induce humility this is a condition of the body which is inducing in me a state of affective openness and opens my heart chakra and I feel very loving this is a position of the body which induces opening of the third eye and suddenly I'm full of insight and I see all kinds of things and I'm perceptive this is how they were they are a body language after all but practiced in the reverse way the yogis say you can ca channelize energies you know it is elementary the body language is elementary right everybody who is doing selling for example these people who are doing pyramid selling structures like Herbalife and Forever Living with Aloe Vera they even have courses of NLP and so on where they teach people who sell who come to your door and bug you don't you want some Herbalife or whatever they teach them how to move their voice and body to sell more successfully because the body language is a method of success or not everybody who is a pedagogist who is learning to teach to become a teacher every teacher knows that with kids in school you have to have a certain body language you'll never see a teacher a good teacher coming to the kids a bunch of, na of, of, of naughty kids in, in a class and you come with your shoulders down and totally depressed and because this morning your girlfriend has left you or something broke whatever and you come the kids will eat you up every good teacher whatever problem he has at home when he comes to the door of the yoga class <coughs> he straightens up and he enters and he says good morning kids because this is what the kids expect to see they need to feel the authority they need to feel that that person is knowledgeable that they receive from if that person comes and says oh kids you know I'm just a man like everybody else today I'm so down you know I'm having an emotional pro what would the kids do? they'll eat him up you know this, this is this is exactly the thing so the position of the body transmits an energy uh, I could give you a lot of examples but I hope you got the point here if not you'll ask more and that is exactly what they do in Indian dance in Indian dance 
which is a traditional dance for a spiritual purpose, they discover that all these mudras and all these positions of the body, they're actually like transmitting an emotion. They transmit an idea. And basically the women and the men, more women than men, who learn to make this Indian dance thing, they, ex- they practice this kind of things years, many, many years they practice them one by one until they can do it quickly and it's like a flashing, pam, 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 it's like a slideshow, you know, every position is pam, 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 giving a new idea, a new emotion and that's why that dance is so fascinating, it is so hypnotic after all. And it is the same, yoga is the same, when you do yoga it's like dancing, every position of yoga is just like a position in which as soon as you get there starts coming a certain energy through you and you enter in a, state, in a certain state of mind and you emanate that energy. That is the way you have to think about the yoga positions. That you do them as a kind of a dance. It is Each one of them is an expression of states of mind. That is very important for each and every one of them. Each one of them channels a certain energy. You cannot do this asana, I don't know which, for uh, five minutes and at the same time be on Svadhisthana. No, if that asana is on Manipura, when you do it willy-nilly, you become fiery. You are full of fire. Because that asana, it says that in this position you cannot be in another way. You will see in a quoting which you have in the papers of today that that's exactly what Gurdjieff said. Gurdjieff said, you will see that certain thoughts certain thoughts can simply not appear in certain positions of the body. Even if you want to think a thought of this, it feels like unnatural and your mind will refuse it. That means in certain positions you can think only certain thoughts. That is why this is exactly what it is. That means with the position of the body, I can create conditions of the spirit. One day I'm stressed up, I am very much on Manipura, and now I'm coming home, my girlfriend is waiting for me at home, and I would like to be in the heart. But I'm stressed up and nervous, how can I get in the heart like this? It's very simple. I can get in the heart like this by assuming the position of opening the heart. I'm telling, look, darling, don't tell to me anything. Give me ten minutes because I'm really stressed up and I'm on Manipura and this discussion will go the wrong place if we start talking in this state of mind of mind. So give me, I'm going in the dormitory, practicing my cobra pose or whatever. I'm coming out with anahata open and I'm saying, okay, now we can talk. Now we can have a nice discussion because now my heart is in the right place. I can change my mood just like this, even if I don't know how to do it with the mind. I can do it with the help of my body. If I'm lacking courage, I can create courage. There is a position which gives me courage. It's so very simple. So in this way, I can modify things for daily life. And of course, I can do those yoga positions which are also creating higher and higher states of mind. So actually I do a position and afterwards I feel very lucid, I feel very elevated, I feel very peaceful, I feel very centered. It's very wonderful. It's like I have done meditation. Because actually asanas are a form of meditation. They are a meditation by keeping your body in a supporting position. So you get that thing. Now one last issue before I finish. You have some beautiful ideas 
<coughs> in the text of today it's where Gurdjieff it's a quoting from Gurdjieff a great western initiate from the 20th century who says that to each and every attitude there corresponds an aptitude each and every position of the body is actually generating a mental capacity so you should know the connection between them and support yourself if you cannot be affective take 10 minutes sit in the position of affectivity and you will feel affective it is so very simple to change your mood and to save the day actually one last thing one uh, British pupil long time ago in Rishikesh he asked me how long are we going to be dependent of this asana factor that means it's a dependency right I cannot be affectionate unless I do my asana for opening the heart chakra I need to go to a job interview and I feel very stressed up and then I need some courage and I'm saying oh wait 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 I need to go to the toilet to do my courage asana for five minutes and then I will come out of the toilet full of courage and so on is it the only way to do it? actually the asanas are only crouches for reaching a certain level that means if I am doing the asana of courage today I feel it then I'm doing it tomorrow I feel it and if I do this a thousand times for the next three years every day I'm doing this then I'm simply getting very used with this emotion I know what it is and how it feels and if after three years I suddenly want it I don't need to do the asana anymore because I did it every day and I'm loaded with this energy I just close my eyes and say how was, how was it yesterday when I did this thing I simply recall <laughs> the mood is there Manipura Chakra is activated just by a simple recall because I did it that is why the asanas are an instrument of learning the asanas are not forever you are not supposed to be dependent forever on the asanas the asanas teach you a skill you can learn to love if you do the right asana but after you have done it for five years you don't need the asana to love anymore you can love without the support of the asana it's like somebody learns to walk with the help of crouches and then when he has learned to walk he throws the crouches and he says now I can do it without this is the thing yoga is eventually in the mind you are doing it with the mental control great yogis they can sit on a chair look at you and activate one chakra just like this by an act of will open a chakra and have the energy flow through it you don't need to do the padahastasana to activate muladhara chakra you can do it on a chair but that requires months and sometimes perhaps years of training so you can learn how to do it with the mind that is why remember that for the yogis yoga itself is not an object of worship yoga is just an instrument many people they compare it they say it's like a ladder exactly as you use a ladder to climb up in the attic of your house but after you are in the attic of your house you don't need the ladder the ladder has become useless so it's the same thing if you did yoga until you reach that level you don't need the yoga practice anymore ah it's true that sometimes even yogis who are advanced they still do practice some asanas why? because they want still to purify the body because you keep on eating stupid things and whatever because they would like to uh, keep it elastic and healthy because they would like sometimes to correct some energetical pathways and so on 
but it's not a necessity. Such a yogi doesn't say, oh, I cannot do my open my third eye unless I'm doing the right asana. No, he can open his third eye like this, sitting on a chair and using a mantra, a color, a visualization, something which he knows. Basically, the asanas are teaching you a skill. Afterwards, you can use the ladder of yoga to give it to someone else and say, hey, you want to get up in the attic where I am? This is the ladder which I have used. If you use it, you will also come up here the same way. It worked for me, it will work for you. It's an instrument. So remember, that is why after we do yoga asanas, and that is a very important practical thing which is also lost, after we do yoga asanas, we stop for a half of a minute or a minute and we look upon the effects. If you do one asana and then immediately say, okay, I did this, what comes next? Ah, this one. Whoa, whoa. Stop. Close your eyes and look upon the effects because else you will never learn how it feels and you will never be able to do it independently. That is why after each asana we are having an awareness phase. A phase in which you stand or sit, depends where you were, and look upon the effects and start to catch those effects and to see how they work and to learn the trick that is also something ignored not only that asanas are done very quickly and without concentration on energies and with the eyes open and whatever else but also they are done without awareness you do an asana and then immediately the yoga teacher says ready we finish this one relax a second okay we are doing the next one where is the awareness? There is no awareness. There is no time to learn something from it. You just immediately go to the next. So in this way, these are typical things for the asanas. You will have your questions. You will study. It will be worth a ton of theory, the fact that you do them here. After you will do them here for a week or two, you will start understanding directly on your body and in your mind how it works, what it does to you. And basically, in this way, I hope I managed this morning to explain that the asanas are not just the gymnastics. They are not even just the energetic thing. They are something which deeply influences your emotions and mind. And with the asanas you can teach yourself to feel things which you never felt before. With the asanas you can open chakras. With the asanas you can reach levels of consciousness that you never reached before. In yoga there are a few asanas which even say if this asana is practiced for this, this, this long time, it will generate states of samadhi. States of cosmic consciousness. So what do you want more? If anybody says asanas are gymnastics, you can laugh because they are not gymnastics. They are practiced as gymnastics by many people, but they originally were a dance. They were a play with the body in which you express different things. A session of asanas is like a session of Indian dance mudras. And actually when you'll see traditional Indian dancers, not these commercial ones, you'll see that they actually do a lot of yoga asanas during their dance and also for their training. Anyhow, enough with that. I try to explain where the confusion comes from and what is the confusion and what you should do. While you are thinking if you have any urgent questions for this morning, let us teach the new yoga technique for this morning. And then we'll proceed with our practice. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.